Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. We remembered St. Benedict of Nursia. Uh, this is one of those remarkable uh, figures in the history of the Church, but he's one of those figures who's also vital for the history of the West. Uh, Western culture owes a great debt to uh, St. Benedict. Uh, He's usually talked about as the father of Western monasticism. But I want to take time to really get to know him better today. And with me is Dr. William Cook. He's Professor Emeritus of History at the State University of New York, Geneseo, where he taught on medieval and Renaissance Europe and church history. He's the president of the Bill Cook Foundation, which helps poor children in 29 countries go to school. You can learn more by going to BillCookFoundation.org. He's authored several books, including The Medieval Worldview, an introduction, and he's hosted nine outstanding Greek course uh, lecture series uh, for the teaching company, including one called The Cathedral. Bill, good to have you back here. Thanks. Al, it's been a while. I'm glad to be back. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I always say it's been too long. Uh, I, need to, <laughs> I need to put you up on one of my, uh, my computer ticklers here because you've got such a wide range of uh, knowledge and teaching that uh, we could draw on you almost every week, for heaven's sakes. <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about um, Benedict of Nursia. Do we know anything about his upbringing? Not very much. We know he was born in the town of what's now called Norcia in Umbria uh, in the year 480. We know he went to Rome to learn uh, because it was still an educational center at that time. Uh, he didn't like the atmosphere, the vibes there, and left and lived for a fairly long time as a hermit south of Rome and uh, had a number of experiences as a hermit that we know about, including an unsuccessful time as the abbot of a monastery. He was called in to sort of help get them in shape, and it ended up the monks tried to poison him because he was <laughs> shaping them up a little bit too much. Wow. Um, but ultimately, around 528 or 529, he took a group of fellow hermits that had been around him and monks and headed off to a place called Monte Cassino, and he founded a monastery there, which is still there. It's been destroyed three times, uh, beginning in the 6th century. It was destroyed in the 9th century. It was destroyed again in the 20th century yeah. uh, during World War II. But Monte Cassino is still there, and it was for Monte Cassino that he wrote the Rule of St. Benedict, which is not the universal rule of Western monasticism, but certainly the primary rule of Western monasticism. Mm-hmm. Um, so he lived the last 20-some years of his life as a monk in Monte Cassino. Uh, would you say that he lived happily those 25 years? Yes. Uh, you know, sometimes I think we imagine monks are always, if not frowning, at least certainly not smiling. Um, (laughs) I think that what we learn from Benedict, and many other monks, I might add, is that there's a profound joy in monasticism. There's a profound joy in the discipline of it. There's a a joy in the, the notion that eight times a day, My brothers and I get together, and we pray to God. We recite the Psalms, we say prayers. Uh, They did not have Mass every day then. That that came later on in the Catholic tradition. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I mean, I I live four miles from a Trappist monastery, and they live under the rule of St. Benedict. And i got to tell you, I don't know a bunch of happier guys. That doesn't mean they're grinning all the time. It doesn't mean they're laughing. Uh, You know, they're not a -a joke-a-minute crowd. Right. Uh, But that you can can experience— uh, the peace being around them, 
And I was just out the other day because they, they, they make bread that I buy. And uh, I had a very jolly talk with uh, Father Jerome. <laughs> no, I, that's a, I, that's a, a very important, very important point to make. Uh, I've often, well, in the past, actually it's been a few years now, I've gone down to the uh, Abbey of Gethsemane uh, near Bardstown, Kentucky. And uh, they're Trappist monks, and so there's no whole, not a whole lot of conversation that goes on. But in the few occasions I've had uh, to speak with some of the monks there, they've, they've always been, again, uh, joy is the right word, uh, and also insightful in my experience. So um, it, it would uh, probably do us all uh, well to get to know uh, monks because they live uh, really quite a different life than those of us outside the monastery. They do, and I would, I would recommend anybody to, to take a retreat. Almost all, um, almost all um, monasteries in the Benedictine tradition welcome visitors. I mean, right. hospitality is one of the great virtues of monks, has been for 1,500 years, and so most of them have places for both men and women uh, to come and visit and spend a few days and eat and live simply and attend some, if not all, of the offices of the day, mm-hmm. uh, which is, in most monasteries, it's somewhat modified from the time of Benedict, but there were eight for Benedict. I think at the Abbey of the Genesee, near where I live, there are seven offices a day. But nevertheless, to have that experience and to do it with a kind of regularity, even for a few days, yeah. is really an enlightening experience. It is. I, I agree wholeheartedly. The, ben- the rule of St. Benedict is extraordinarily influential. Is is this a is this a work of original genius, or did he pick and choose from various pre-existing traditions? Yes and yes. Okay. Let me let me do the second yes first. That is to say, there were previous rules. The earliest one going back to Egypt in the late fourth century, the rule of Pacomius. He knew a rule that we still have called the rule of the master. And there were others. Almost every monastery had its own rule. That was one of the issues. After all, this was a chaotic time in Western Europe, mm-hmm. because after 476, there was no Roman emperor in the West. But even before that, in the late 4th and early 5th centuries, it was a pretty chaotic place. Rome was sacked twice in the 5th century, for example. So uh, at, at monasteries were scattered, and each one pretty much had its own way. But Benedict's rule emerged in such a way that by 800 or so, Charlemagne was able to ask about his empire, is there any other monastic rule except that of St. Benedict? Wow. And I think the, the quick answer to why that happened is, it's just a brilliant, brilliant document. It has rigor, it has limitations, it has compassion, it is a livable, tough, but livable life, and... I think it's fair to say that Benedict is one of the spiritual and religious geniuses. I would classify him among the major early Christian fathers, not just in the monastic world, but, I mean, he ranks with the greatest of the early monastic writers, both for influence and also for the quality of what he's able to produce in the rules. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that makes that makes sense to me. I mean, this the rule has actually been. I've seen books uh, written for uh, businessmen. Uh, That's right. Derived from the rule of Saint Benedict, so it's, it's had it's That's had right. much application. Well, I I recently gave a talk to the board of a large company in Rochester, New York, uh, and they wanted me to talk about something relevant to them. 
So I talked half the time about the rule of St. Benedict and half the time about St. Francis. And by golly, they <laughs> thought I was actually relevant, given what I said about those those texts. Excellent. Those That's people. great. Um, did I mean, this is all happening at the time that we're reaching the close of, uh, well, the Roman Emperor, there's no Roman Emperor after 476, but there was chaos leading in the West. That's right. Let's not forget Byzantium here. Um, Right. I was just there, so that's sort of on my mind. (laughs) So, so, chaos, did he see himself as a preserver of the things that remained? I mean, was he embarked upon a wider cultural mission rather than just a, quote, monastic mission. Yes, but it's rather subtle in the rule. That is to say, there are no particular pieces of the rule that prescribe, uh, you know, an academic program. But we find parts of the rule that assume the literacy of all the monks. Mm. For example, the most famous part is that every, every Lent, a monk must choose a book from the library and read it during Lent. Yeah. Still a practice that monks have. Well, that suggests, A, there's 100% literacy or something close to it, right. and B, there's a library. <laughs> he never actually talks about the library, but it's, it's presumed, because the, you know, ora et labora is the motto of the monks, pray and work. The work is not just manual labor, but it's also the spiritual work. It's not just raising the crops or washing the dishes. But the work of the monk is much more encompassing than that. The work includes, for example, reciting all the psalms every week. Mm -hmm. And so the work also involves literacy. It involves books. And there are quiet times of the day when the monks have a chance to retire and read. And so it's very important, although he never describes, you know, monks sitting at desks transcribing uh, old books, it happened in Monte Cassino, and it happened in every monastery that adopted the rule of St. Benedict. So, yes, it, it's, but it's, it's implicit. It's not that I'm trying to form a community of scholars. That's right. not what he wanted right. to do. Yeah. Uh, do, how soon do they actually begin um, uh, you know, copying the, the works from the classical past? Of course, it was already going on. That is to say, there it were was. monasteries before, okay. mo- before Monte Cassino and Benedict. But I think this is an important fact that people don't realize. Every single work of classical literature that we have, Plato, Aristotle, Greek tragedies, whatever it is, every single one survives only because it was copied in monasteries. <laughs> we don't have any quote-unquote ancient manuscript. We have fragments. But you can't go and say, let me see a book, you know, uh, let me see Aristotle written, you know, at the time he lived or in the next century. No, all of that is because there was a tradition in monasteries that valued books and valued not just Christian books, but also the classical works. Mm -hmm. And they copied everything. They didn't just copy Plato. They also copied Sophocles, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, the historian Livy, and all those sorts of things. And we know even in the 15th century, during the Renaissance, when people wanted to find more classical works, where did they go? They went to monastic libraries and said, show me your back room. Uh, (laughs) Let me blow off the dust and see what you've got that you haven't used in a long time. And that's exactly how 
so many new works were discovered in the West, for example, in the 15th century. Wow. Again, this is a, one another example of the world's debt uh, to the Catholic Church here. And uh, talking with Dr. Bill Cook, he's, uh, again, uh, Professor Emeritus of History at uh, State University of New York, Geneseo. We've been talking about St. Benedict of Nursia, the rule of St. Benedict. We're going to continue on the other side and see uh, what was the ideal abbot in Benedict's uh, mind. We'll also take a look at uh, how he how he imagines uh, a Christian community functioning well. I'm Al Cresta. Stay with me. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is uh, Dr. Bill Cook, Professor Emeritus of History at State University of New York, Geneseo, we're looking at the life and the uh, contribution uh, of Benedict of Nursia, St. Benedict, the often called the father of Western monasticism. He's uh, the author of the Rule of St. Benedict, which uh, not only has application to the monastic life, but has actually been used in business circles for its insights. And Bill, I, I was wondering how... What is, how did Benedict conceive of the relationship between the monastic community and the surrounding civil community? It's interesting because we tend to think of isolation. We tend to think of monasteries out in the boondocks somewhere, right. which is largely true. Although there's one, for example, right in the middle of Florence uh, in Italy, a Benedictine <laughs> monastery. But basically, he understood that there was a relationship between the world and the monastery that was that was positive. Uh, they fed a lot of hungry people. They were, in many ways, the hotels of the Middle Ages. Travelers would stop and stay in monasteries because hospitality is it has a, an important place in the rule of St. Benedict. Mm-hmm. And so it did, in fact, operate within the world. And remember, the 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 monastery, not the individual monks, but the monastery was a property holder. And therefore, they raised crops, and of course they had to trade or sell those crops to get things that they couldn't produce, like, well, how about things like uh, what you write books on, yep. uh, which would have been parchment later in the Middle Ages, and it would, have, it would have been something else earlier in the Middle Ages. So there was a relationship. It was economic and otherwise, and even today, uh, as, as isolated, say, as Trappist monks are, as we imagine, my, the monastery near me is Trappist, uh, they have visitors there on Sunday, they have a, a gift shop which sells their bread and so on and so forth, and they have good, they're limited, of course, but they have good relations with the world. I, in fact, was confirmed as a member of the church at the Abbey of the Genesee by the abbot. <laughs> so they even do things like that for, you know, lay folks like me. <laughs> I didn't realize that. Um, what are the ideal qualities of an abbot? Benedict's very clear about him. I've got the I've got the text in front of me because I don't want to to misrepresent him. First of all, he says he is believed he the abbot is believed to hold the place of Christ in the monastery. Mm. That's a pretty exalted <laughs> task. Yeah. Now, how do you how do you do that? He says first of all that if the abbot messes up. He will be held responsible if the flock goes astray. 
So the abbot has great responsibility. Benedict says, the abbot will lead by example more than by words. That's a quotation. He should avoid all favoritism. A man born free is not to be given higher rank than a slave. Imagine saying that in the 6th century. Yeah, uh, after yeah, that's no, great. Um, great. The only things that count in, in, in ranking people are good works and humility. It says that when there are problems in the monastery, he must vary with circumstances, threatening and coaxing by turn. There's not one rule or one activity that fits all the needs of the monasteries. He is someone who has to serve, it says, a variety of temperaments, sometimes reproving, sometimes coaxing. You can see why this is a good leadership manual yeah. for business executives. Yeah, yeah right? absolutely. Uh, all I mean, it's, of it's... those things would, would make the business world a lot better if if the leaders of businesses spent a little bit more time uh, you know, uh, with St. Benedict, a little bit less time with their MBA manuals. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, this is an example of servant leadership. and um, Exactly yeah. so. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've enjoyed a Benedictine writer, uh, Dom Hubert von Zeller, who I don't know if many of his books are still in print. I've got old mm. copies of it just before the Second Vatican Council. Yeah. He, he was also a sculptor, and I was surprised when I learned that. Uh, do you know? Do Benedictines have time uh, for the arts? Yes, they do. In fact, it was interesting because uh, again, I'm going to use the example I know best. In the mid '70s, when I was still young, uh, the Abbey of the Genesee was basically a Quonset hut that had been built in 1950, taking some of the overflow from Gethsemane. <laughs> and in 1975, they decided to build a new church, and they pretty much designed it, and it was made out of stones that were on the property, and they got all the stones out themselves. I mean, the monks joked that, that you know, the biggest medical problem in our monastery was hernia. <laughs> and they did the building. They chose what kinds of windows they wanted, how much light they wanted. Essentially, they were collectively, with the abbot's lead, they were the architects of their own church because it needed to fit their spirituality. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. if we think about a lot of churches, we think about a theology of light, especially with the Gothic. The sure. monks wanted a more contemplative atmosphere. It needed to have light, but it also needed to be more contemplative than a cathedral, which was, after all, built for different kinds of purposes right. than a monastery. So uh, our monks at the Abbey of the Genesee are, are, are quite creative, and of course, I suppose the most famous writer monk of the 20th century is Thomas Burden, who was at Gethsemane. Right. And he wrote not only theology, he wrote poetry and, 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 and a, a, a memoir, pro- probably the best Catholic memoir of the 20th century. Yeah, yeah. Seven Story Mountain. Uh, I've yeah. re- read it many times. Um, I, I've heard, I was watching a documentary the other night on Bill Wilson, the founder of AA. And uh, in the course of the documentary, reference was made uh, that the rule of St. Benedict had some kind of influence. It it was implied, it wasn't laid out in the documentary, Mm -hmm. but some type of influence on these 12-step recovery programs. Do you know if there's a direct connection at all? I I don't know that, but it certainly makes sense to me as 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 you say it, because, again, it seems to me what that has 
And what the rule has is a sense that there really needs to be discipline. One needs to really be careful about things. And yet, one, one needs to live. Uh, one, one can't be every second simply, you know, trying to follow another rule. And yeah. the, the best example, I think, is uh, what, the, what Benedict says about wine. He says, wine is not the drink of monks. Period. But, right here, <laughs> period. Right. Okay. but you know, I'm sort of in, in parentheses, this is Italy. But because I can't convince monks of that, we need to limit it to so much per day and so on. That you, you've got you've to live a life in the world, but yeah. it also needs to be subject to certain restrictions. And you've got to be careful about exactly what those restrictions are. Benedict did not carve out an impossibly hard life to live. Right. Uh, if if he had, uh, the abbot would spend all of his time correcting sinners. Yeah, and yeah. the abbot had lots of other things to do. So Ben Benedict is, you know, uh, he he's strict and sensible, and never loses in his writing of the rule his own humanity, his own experiences. Yeah, yeah. I, as as the uh, monastery becomes. Uh, increasingly important as an institution in the West. Uh, how do they handle the acquisition of property and the creation of these uh, monastic foundations, which I understand ha had an influence uh, on the economy of the West? Sure. Um, from the very beginning, the monks own land. In other words, every monk takes a vow of poverty and other vows as well. And so no monk owns anything. No monk owns his own habit, for example. Mm, okay. uh, that belongs to the monastery. But the monastery collectively owns property under the authority, of course, of the abbot. And that was necessary because they needed a certain kind of independence. They needed to provide for themselves. And, and that was vitally important. If you're dependent on the, you know, the local noble, or for that matter, the local bishop, that makes it a very different kind of place. Yeah. So they have a certain kind of independence. In fact, the word bishop, I believe, appears only once in the Rule of St. Benedict. Oh, interesting. Um, and, and so he doesn't talk much about the relationship between the, the secular clergy and the, and the hierarchy of the Church and a monastery. Obviously, he knows only bishops, ordained priests, and so on and so forth, but he is trying to write a rule of how these folks live, and they, they need property. Now, obviously, there were many times when that was abused. And uh, there were certainly monasteries in the in the Middle Ages and beyond that lived pretty easy lives, and and, and in many cases had serfs doing the actual plowing of the fields and so on and so forth. That's yeah. why there are a number of reforms, beginning with Cluny in the 10th century, the Cistercians in the 12th century, uh, the Trappist in the 17th century. So there are a number of reforms of the Benedictine tradition to sort of to sort of bring things back closer to Benedict, because obviously monasteries are influenced by the political and social and economic and religious culture that's around them. Mm -hmm. So it's always kind of a struggle, and every now and then there are some tensions between abbots and bishops, where bishops say, we really would like you to do this. For example, this has happened in the United States. There's a shortage of priests. Uh, there may be a dozen priests at a monastery. And the bishop might say, can't you let some of those guys go out on Sunday and say Mass in parishes? And 
uh, I know that's conflict has happened in my diocese. Oh, okay. so th- there are there are these kinds of tensions that exist, and hopefully they're normally creative tensions that work themselves out. But you know there have been conflicts certainly. How much of the rule of Saint Benedict should someone read to really get a feel for it? It's a fairly short rule. It, there are many different translations. The translation I have is about 90 pages long, okay. but there are parts of it you would want to skim. For example, again, one of my favorite parts, he goes into detail, I mean detail, in saying, in the course of the week, here is how we sing the psalms. You know, on Monday morning we sing psalms, you know, 9, 10, 47. <laughs> on Monday afternoon, and so on. And it, it's really that complicated. Wow. And at the end of it all, he says, and... If anybody knows a better way to do it, do it that way. <laughs> Which is a great example of what Benedict's all about. Here is, I think, the best scheme for singing the Psalms, the best order. But somebody may know better than I, and it's okay to do that, as long as you sing every Psalm every week. Yeah. The yeah. principle was more important than the details. So you'd want to skip the 20 pages of, you know, which Psalm goes in which office, and all that sort of stuff. So I would say if somebody took, took the rule and again, with a little bit of skimming, spent a couple hours with it, um, that would be a wonderful thing. I used the, I used the, the translation that was done in 1980 uh, at, at uh, the monastery in, um, in Minnesota, oh. uh, which is actually the world's largest minis- one in Collegeville, Minnesota. Uh, so I like it. It's called the Bened- the Rule of Saint Benedict in English, nineteen eighty. Nineteen eighty, which was which was an anniversary of the birth of Benedict. Okay, okay. I I don't know if I've got that, but I'll get my hands on it and take a look it, at it's it. A, it's a cheap. Well, funny, it's a cheap paperback. I mean, it, it's not even a full size paperback, and it's uh, it's really an, an, I think a nice modern translation. Well, we've got about uh, forty five seconds here, uh, Bill. Do we know uh, about his passing from this world? Do we have any stories about his death? No, not really. Um, the only way we know most of his life as a monk is from a and, and biography is the wrong word. It's more a hagiography by Pope Gregory the Great, written late in the sixth century before he became Pope. In all likelihood, so that would be the best source. But again, it is. It is. It's got to remember. It's not a history. It's a hagiography. Gotcha. Gotcha. Bill, once again, thanks so much. Great talking with you, and uh, I'll try to make sure it's not so long next time. That, that'd be wonderful. I'm around. All right. Bill Cook, again, uh, let me urge you to visit his BillCookFoundation.org as he does great work in 29 countries around the world.